another pot of coffee is brewing. As I was for a change in the office today, I've actually only had one cup. And I think that this episode is probably going to take a while recording and editing as I am the night before release. So I definitely will deserve at least another pint or two this evening of coffee, not beer. All that means is that it's time for another episode of Not Before Coffee, I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, TV show marathoner, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine fiend. If that list gets any longer, it's going to take a lot more than one breath to recite it. What better time to start a season of something new? Today is that day. I'm starting November with a season of films starring the same actress. There are a considerable number of actresses who built their acting reputations and probably made quite a lot of money starring in romantic comedies. Actresses such as Drew Barrymore, Reese Witherspoon, Renee Zellweger and of course the queen of them all, Meg Ryan. However, none of those are the focus for the next four weeks. That honour is being given to Jennifer Aniston. I am starting the season with the 2005 film Rumour Has It, which also stars a rather young and very cute curly-haired Mark Ruffalo, a good eight years before he turned green and developed seriously damaging anger issues on screen. Living in New York, Sarah, played by Jennifer Aniston, must make the cross-country trip back to her home state of California for the wedding of her younger sister, Annie, played by Mina Suvari. Once with her family, Sarah loans some interesting things from her grandmother, Shirley MacLaine, including the family's inspirational ties to the famous film The Graduate. But all this leads to millionaire Beau Burrows, Kevin Costner, and Sarah wants answers especially since Burroughs might be her real father. As many films do, this one starts with a story that may or may not be true. Being honest, it's not, but the way it's delivered indicates it could be. It tells the story that is told in the Charles Webb novel, The Graduate, though much shorter. It's New Year's Eve 1962 and a 21-year-old sleeps with a married 42-year-old woman, the affair lasts six months, until the young man drops her for another woman, the woman's only daughter. Three days later, the daughter marries another man, and the only people aware of the fling are the mother, the daughter, and the young man. Until the next spring, when a book is published written by an ex-classmate of the young man. Wow, young man is used a lot here. The names are changed, but the gossip at the country club is rife as they try and figure out who the book is about. Over time, the gossip fades and is all but forgotten, until four years later the film is released, starring Anne Bancroft and Dustin Hoffman, making the book, the events that led up to it, and the film itself a topic of popular conversation everywhere. But no one knows if it's true or not. Throughout the retelling, we see a sophisticated woman smoking a cigarette, though we only ever see her from the back. We see her hand and the cigarette, Fast forward just over 40 years, though for some reason the voiceover says 30, so perhaps the film is meant to take place in the 90s and I missed something, and we're on a plane flying to Pasadena. 
Sarah Huttinger and her fiancé Jeff, played by Mark Ruffalo, are on their way from New York for an extended weekend stay with her family as her sister Annie is getting married. While on the plane, Jeff notices that Sarah is not wearing her engagement ring. She makes up a few excuses but finally admits that she doesn't want to announce their engagement at her sister's wedding. To be honest though, there is another reason for her hesitation. Clearly wanting to distract Jeff, Sarah tells him that they should have sex in the airplane toilet. She gets up and tells him to follow her and knock three times on the door. He's not totally sold on the idea, but to be honest, neither of them are. Once in the toilet, they experience some turbulence and Jeff is left with wet trousers as Sarah accidentally flushes the airplane toilet. Yay, blue water! At the centre of all this acting out is Sarah's misery. She's never met her sister's fiancé and she feels guilty about the fact that she wasn't there to help her sister pick out a wedding dress or just be there for her in general. Jeff tries to comfort her by telling her that he doesn't think Annie expects her to take on the role of their mother, who passed away many years previously. But she also gets depressed when she is going home. Sarah says that this is because she doesn't feel like she fits in with the rest of her family. Though, when you find out her reasons for this, it's enough to make people who really don't fit in with their families want to spit teeth. I'll get into that a bit later. Sarah leaves the toilet. No sex has been had. Jeff waits and then is surprised by the arrival of another plane passenger who definitely, A, was not expecting someone else to be in the toilet and B, wants to use it for its traditional purpose. Talk about awkward. Seriously, the expressions on their faces say it all. Though Sarah is focused on the fact that she's never met her sister's fiancé, she has also never introduced Jeff to any of her family. So talk about an uncomfortable time to make introductions. Hardly an intimate dinner situation. Seriously, hi dad, this is Jeff, and that's the introduction at the airport. As they're heading to Pasadena, we're given glimpses of locations such as the Rose Bowl and huge houses with beautifully manicured lawns. So it's clear that Sarah's family has money. They are the country club set. While Earl, that's Sarah's father, and Jeff are talking about fly fishing and other things, Sarah is reliving what sounds to be a rather unpleasant childhood and the memories she has of it being cornered and bullied and everything else. So it doesn't sound idyllic by any stretch of the imagination. And it seems that when she was a child, she used to constantly insist that she had to have been adopted because she didn't fit in. When they get to the house, Sarah introduces Jeff to Annie. Annie is perky, bouncy and dressed in tennis whites. We then meet her fiancé Scott, who is kind of Annie's male equivalent, literally. Annie is obviously quick to make judgments and immediately takes to Jeff. Sarah asks Annie if she's scared. She's making decisions left and right about the wedding and then suggests that Sarah and Jeff play a game of mixed doubles with her and her fiancé. Jeff wants to know why Sarah won't tell her sister that they've been talking about marriage and he asks if she's getting cold feet because she just won't tell anybody. It turns out Sarah writes announcements in the newspaper, which reminds me a little of Iris in the holiday. Jeff is on the other side of the room at the evening meal, being introduced to Earl's acquaintances who all have exactly the same story to tell him about how people in LA never actually come from LA. And you can see the life slowly draining from his eyes as he's hearing the same thing over and over. These are clearly not the kind of people that Sarah and Jeff actually feel comfortable around. 
All of Annie's friends are so much like Annie. It's like Attack of the Squealing Clones. In order to escape, Sarah heads to the bar, and that's when we cut to a woman we can only see from the back being asked not to smoke in the house. Sarah sees her and is really happy to see her grandma, played by Shirley MacLaine, who compliments her on how she looks, and then the fact that she's already turned to drinking spirits. Sarah is ambivalent when it comes to telling her grandmother about her life, her relationship with Jeff and her career, though as they're walking in for the rehearsal dinner, Sarah blurts out that Jeff proposed to her. She accepted and now feels like she's living life in a blur. Sensing that Sarah needs to talk, Catherine takes her granddaughter outside. Meanwhile, poor Jeff is still listening to a multitude of rather repetitive and somewhat tedious dinner guests. Seriously, these are the people she grew up around. Why is she leaving her fiancé to sort of swim against the tide? Is she waiting for him to drown in it? Hearing how Sarah feels, Catherine speaks bluntly, a little angry, it seems, when Sarah states that her caution is purely because of what happened to her mother after she married. Her mother didn't kill herself or anything, she died. It's not like she chose to leave. Jeff goes looking for Sarah and instead finds Earl, who is nervous about giving a father of the bride speech. He says that he wishes Sarah's mother were here because she helped to put him at ease, which elicits a really awkward hug between Earl and Jeff, which becomes a standing joke at the end of the uh, that is enacted again at the end of the film. Has Jeff been drinking a lot to numb the boredom down to manageable levels or something? Catherine thinks that Sarah's going through doubts, and then she mentions that her daughter, Jocelyn, Sarah's mother, went missing before the wedding. But realising what she said, she walks away. Sarah, however, won't let it go. Perhaps it's the reporter in her. And Catherine throws out that maybe she went to Carbo, but she's not sure. As Earl is giving the toast, Jeff does a bit of maths and tells Sarah that her parents didn't waste much time between marriage and having their first daughter. Way to go, Jeff. But of course, as Sarah hasn't confided any of the information that Catherine gave her, because there's been no time, he's got no idea about her mother's premarital jaunt. Sarah needs to know the truth about her mum, but Catherine isn't talking, so Sarah is left with more doubts that have her sneaking to Jeff's room in the middle of the night, because as they aren't married and it's Pasadena, they have to stay in separate rooms, according to Sarah. She's like a dog with a bone. She's absolutely positive that her mother had to have had a premarital affair and that she, Sarah, was the result. The next day, Sarah heads to see her mother's best friend, Aunt Mitzi, who is played by an almost unrecognisable Kathy Bates. She wants to find out what happened before her mum and dad got married. Mitzi denies any knowledge of any other man, though she does give away enough when she says the only man Sarah's mum was ever interested in was Earl, her husband, and then there was Beau Burrows, who was a year ahead of them at school. We get a bit of a trip down memory lane with her mother's high school yearbook. It appears that Beau was a playboy who wasn't interested in settling down. And then Mitzi shows her a picture of Charlie Webb, the author of The Graduate. It's when Mitzi starts to talk about the book that she pauses and starts to sound as though she's in pain as she realises what must have happened. 
On her way back to her dad's house, Sarah calls Jeff and asks him to go to the video store to get a copy of The Graduate. Jeff is completely out of the loop and wants to know where Sarah is because Sarah actually meant to be headed to the church. Seriously, it's the day of her sister's wedding and instead of being where she's needed, she's off on some wild goose chase. Jeff thinks that she's insane when she reveals that her family is the one that the graduate was based on, that her mother ran off with the man who inspired the character of Benjamin Brack. Catherine bursts in and Sarah accuses her of being Mrs Robinson and starts to outline her theory. But it's her sister's wedding day and there are so many better times to examine a potential family scandal. While watching the bridesmaids walk down the aisle with the groomsmen, Jeff starts to ask Catherine questions about it all. But she's less than amused and seriously, Shelley McLean is very, very good at acting this way. We witness the wedding, which is absolutely a show of wealth and position and is completely over the top. The next thing we know, Sarah and Jeff are packing up their belongings, or rather Jeff is packing and Sarah is doing her best to track down the man she thinks might be her father, Bo Burrows. Nothing anyone says to her is going to convince her that she's onto a loser with this theory, not until she has had a chance to ask for herself and he's the only person left she thinks can tell her the truth. At the airport, after saying goodbye to her dad, she borrows Jeff's phone and calls the school she went to. As an alumna, she asks for contact details for Bo. She leaves Jeff to check them in for their flight and then changes her plans completely after discovering that Bo is actually speaking in San Francisco at an event that evening and she is determined she is going to confront him. Sure that Sarah will stop being confused and finally take a few steps towards being his wife as she keeps telling him she wants to jeff is nothing but supportive of her choices and even offers to go with her but she declines his company he heads off for his flight and she goes to watch bo burrows speak he's strong confident and powerful but no matter how many times i watch this part of the film i still don't get exactly what he's talking about like not at all. And I understand tech speak. I just don't get what Bo Burrows is referring to in any stretch of the imagination. As she's walking around the hotel after the presentations, Bo spots Sarah and her press badge and asks her if she has any questions for him. After a few moments, though, he's pulled away from the conversation by another business manager, Roger, who just gives off this sleazy vibe. But of course, there is always at least one of course, Bo is fascinated by Sarah already, despite only having spent a few brief moments with her, and her conversation was hardly the most insightful, but she's different to everyone else in the room. When he finally returns his attention to her, it's clear to most that she's hovering, and she immediately tells him that she wants to speak with him in private. He probably thinks that he's onto a winner, but instead she opens up with who her mother is, and the smug smirk he has on his face just disappears almost instantly. The conversation from this point gets very awkward as Sarah starts to ask about what happened between him and her mother and her grandmother, and of course the book and the movie that were inspired by all of these events. Bo tells her that there were creative liberties, mostly that he didn't actually graduate from college, and of course he didn't run off with her mother at the end. 
the conversation is interrupted by Jeff calling because he realises that Sarah has his phone. She tells him that she's with Bo and Jeff is nothing but supportive yet again. More for him. Conversation between Sarah and BB continues. Yes, I'm going to say it here. I'm just going to call him BB throughout the rest because saying Bo borrows repeatedly is very tedious. It's all still really awkward and I can't quite understand why Sarah hasn't made it as a journalist because every single question she asks is more nosy than the last. After a while, BB realises that she thinks he may be her father and he immediately dissuades her by telling her that he is sterile. Sorry, but right now I would be telling her that everything else is none of her business. Seriously, I'd probably even tell her I'd cooperate with a DNA test just to get her to shut up and go away. It appears that during a soccer match at school, he was kicked in the testicular region badly enough that it caused blunt testicular trauma. This is where the film takes, for me at least, a really odd turn. Sarah and BB shake hands and she takes her leave, still repeating his diagnosis in disbelief. As she stands outside the hotel, BB follows her just to make sure that she's okay. She got the answers she needed, but she doesn't like what she discovered. All along, Sarah has been making assumptions, first about her relationship with her family, then about her grandmother, BB, and now about the state of her mother's marriage. She is sure that her parents must have been miserable together, that her mother didn't love her husband at all, and of course that it was all her fault because her mother was pregnant with her and had to get married. Talk about making really, really blunt assumptions here. Ultimately, it's clear that she didn't get the answers she wanted. She wanted to be right about her reasons for being different. But seriously, if we were all the same as every member of our family, then I would be taller, thinner, love athletics, hate reading, have darker skin, brown eyes and dark brown hair. Instead, I am none of those things. And while I would love to find it easy to lose weight and at least reach the height of five foot, I am not and I don't. She is putting the blame for everything in her life that she is unhappy with at the feet of her assumptions that her family is the thing in her life that doesn't work. It's all me, me, me. Seriously. She then starts to cry at the hopelessness of it all in front of an absolute stranger who awkwardly does his best to comfort her. Personally, I think she needs therapy and some sort of medication. But what do I know? BB takes her to Chinatown and over beer, he tells her that she's not the first person to have doubts about their life. He was no different. I have to say that more than anything, I find her attraction to Bo disturbing. The fact that he is definitely flirting with her is creepy. He slept with her mother and her grandmother and is now trying his damnedest to get in her pants too. He is telling Sarah everything she wants to hear about her mother but at the same time neither of them have the full picture because he didn't know she was engaged and Sarah doesn't remember enough of her mother to know whether her parents were in love or not. She just assumes because why else would her mum have run off for a few days before her wedding? It's not like she's having doubts or anything. Sarah is the one that initiates contact between them and kisses Beau. Initially he appears startled and then he is wholeheartedly involved. 
So much so that the next morning, Sarah wakes up in his bed in his home. Then Jeff's phone rings in her purse and reality invades for a moment, but she just ignores it. Does she feel regret? Did Jeff even cross her mind? She can't blame everything on drink and the fact that she was upset. The morning after can be uncomfortable and it's no different for these two who are just generally all round awkward, especially when she tells him it's time for her to leave and that it was nice meeting him. Sarah confided way too much in him the previous evening and because of that he assumes that she doesn't have much to rush back to. There is a lot of assumptions going on in this film. It really is assume this, assume that on behalf of most of the characters. He takes her on a private plane to the wine country where he tells her that he believes her reasons for being cautious with him are to do with his age. Of course it's all to do with age. It can't be anything at all to do with the fact that he's already worked his way through several members of her family, including her mother. For someone who is annoyed at him, she doesn't seem to be demanding he take her to the nearest airport so she can go back to her life in New York. You know, where her fiancé is. In a move that's rather strange and I would consider a little bit like blackmail, BB tells Sarah that he'll fly her home if she goes with him to the biggest San Francisco charity event of the year that evening, Casablanca night. So it didn't cross her mind that at any point she should just go to the airport on her own? Of course, she goes to the ball wearing a beautiful dress that she definitely did not have in her suitcase when she arrived. Slimy Roger is at the ball and convinces Bo to go and speak with a potential investment, thus leaving Sarah on her own. And this is the moment when all her doubts come back, as this is when she meets Blake Burrows, played by Mike Vogel, who in this, for some reason, reminds me a lot of Ryan Hansen. He's BB's son. Did BB lie to her about being sterile? To me, personally, that's just too gross to even contemplate because that would mean he knowingly potentially slept with his own daughter. Oh my God, does she really think that he's that disgusting a human being? Interesting observation here, though. All of Sarah's interactions with the Burroughs men are punctuated with really awkward and very long silences. When Bibi returns, she's disturbed and jumpy, and it's only when Blake shows up he realises that she's going to jump to conclusions. But when he tells her that Blake isn't his biological son, but the child of his wife and a donor, I really don't get it. Why does he keep on having to justify himself? And why would she just jump to these conclusions again? Sarah's a mess. Seriously, she actually believes anyone could do what she was accusing Bo of doing, then she needs help. She's just finished giving him a series of incredibly flattering compliments to stop him sulking like a child. Why is she doing this? When he leans down and he kisses her. Neither of them realise that they have a paralysed audience in the form of Jeff, who has been worriedly searching for Sarah since the first unanswered call. Instead of offering up an explanation or an apology, the first thing that she asks is, what are you doing here? Seriously? She's snogging a man she believed only a day before could be her father, and she's asking her fiancé what he's doing there. Jeff walks away. 
and Sarah runs after him. Right now, the only person my heart is breaking for is him. Sarah knew that she was committed to someone else when she slept with Beau. She let herself be swept up in the romance. Something that she doesn't even contemplate could have also happened with her mother. When someone you claim to love asks you why you slept with someone else, the last thing you should answer with is, I didn't mean to. Seriously? Did she trip over and fall on his man parts by accident or something? Was there a loose edge of a rug? Jeff tells her that he realises the engagement they moved into doesn't mean anything to her. And the fact that she told everyone but him she had doubts goes some way to proving that. Cue the waterworks yet again. But they don't mean anything. They are just a tool she is using to garner pity. Okay, so she's probably a mental mess at the moment. But this is a situation that she made happen. She tells him this story about how she doesn't know who she is, but he's the only person she can be herself around. And that makes so much sense. Does it? He tells her that if she means it, then marry him now. But Sarah can't answer him, and he knows that the hesitation says more than any words could. She leaves alone, with Beau watching, and then we see her at the airport waiting for a flight. Instead of going back to New York, she goes to see her grandmother in Pasadena and tells her that she found Beau Burrows. Catherine is the voice of reason, until she flips out about the fact that Sarah slept with BB and that the entire situation is that man's fault. It seems that Catherine also has some anger issues where he is concerned. Sarah is still on her pity journey when Earl calls Catherine and asks for help because it appears that Annie had a panic attack as she was on her way to her honeymoon and he has no idea what to do to calm her down. Sarah is just unreal. She is so sure she knows exactly what happened in her parents' relationship, despite having no clue, and is flinging accusations left and right. Someone just needs to slap her out of her rant before she hurts someone. Or someone else, because she's already hurt Jeff. As Catherine is trying to get Sarah to see reason, Annie is demanding to speak with Sarah. Not sure exactly how she can offer comfort to anyone at this point. Am I the only one here to note, though, that neither Huttinger girl is actually crying? They're just yelling and acting like spoilt children. Slaps all round, methinks. Yeah, that's kind of how we dealt with things in the 70s and 80s. It turns out that Annie wants to know more about their mum. She was only four when they lost her and she wants to know if she was happy. But Sarah doesn't know the answer. She's already admitted she knows nothing about herself. So right now, at this point, how can she help anyone else? Sarah tells Annie that she thinks that there is no one better to marry than your best friend. And Annie points out that this is what Sarah has with Jeff, further highlighting to her that she made a whopping mistake. Annie starts talking about how she's so messed up when Sarah mentions she slept with a man who slept with their mum and their grandmother, at which point we discover how truly blonde Annie is when she wants to know when Catherine slept with their dad. Catherine is on the phone in the kitchen downstairs when she spies BB sitting in a car outside the Huttinger house. She's furious 
and storms out to confront him, accompanied by the theme of the good, the bad and the ugly. You know, she's livid about Sarah and is still livid about her daughter. Catherine is shouting at Beau with Sarah and Annie, an intrigued audience. It appears that Catherine is really angry because Beau dumped her for a younger model, though she would never admit it. However, BB is not stupid or he'd never have made so much money. Earl comes out to find out what the commotion is and he recognises BB, but it's not because of any other reason than he was the one who kicked him so hard during that soccer match that he caused acute testicular trauma. Talk about a small world. BB wants to talk to Sarah. He starts spouting this guff about how he was heartbroken when her mother left and he felt the same when she left him without saying goodbye. Seriously, does this stuff ever work? The whole thing with Beau and everything after made Sarah realise that she spent so much of her life trying to figure out who she is when in reality she was just chasing the ghost of her mother. In doing so, she managed to almost destroy all that was actually good about her life. It seems that Sarah's dad is far more astute than she gives him credit for. As they're sitting down to drink tea, she asks him what he knows about her mother's trip to Mexico. He tells her that they loved each other and she came back because of that and nothing else. He also tells her that the night she returned from Carbo was the night that they conceived Sarah. Had she just spoken to her dad in the beginning, this is what frustrates me so much. Had she just said to her dad in the beginning, what was your relationship with mum like? The entire disaster that, that she caused could have been completely averted. Here I do have to point out one other thing that refers back to something I said at the beginning. Sarah has a really strange idea of what makes it obvious that someone is genetically related to someone else. I don't like tennis. I drive like a crazy person. And you drive so slowly. Really? This is what she's judging her familial similarities on? Not, we've all got some shade of blonde hair and I have blue eyes and... I don't like tennis is the reason. Oh my good grief. It's at this point that she realises she threw away the best thing she ever had when she cheated on Jeff and didn't give him the answer he needed as reassurance that she actually cares for him. After a journey from the airport in a New York yellow cab, which we follow from above, Sarah arrives at Jeff's apartment and somewhere along the way, she managed to dump her luggage and change clothes. Understandably, Jeff is not so happy to see her, and I don't blame him. But he lets her in when she tells him that she wouldn't blame him for slamming the door on her. Subtle manipulation, methinks. The confrontation is a little awkward, but she doesn't deserve easy forgiveness. He compares the pain that she inflicted on his heart to the car crash he was in as a child when he split his head open on the dash. She tells him that it didn't mean anything to her, but that doesn't mean that it eliminates any of the pain that she caused. She finally tells him that she wants to marry him and she will do it to his timeline. He tells her that it's not that easy, but that it's not his job to make it all better because she's the one that broke it all and he's not wrong. 
She tells him that she didn't go to see him to tell him that she couldn't live without him, as she could, but she loves him and she doesn't want to be without him. For a moment, it does feel as though it could go either way, but then this is a romantic comedy and without the happy ending, it's not romantic. It's a tragedy. However, he does let her walk away and get as far as the ground floor of his building. When the door slides open, Jeff is standing there breathless and he has a single condition. One that really shouldn't have to be said, but given current circumstances is probably quite wise. Bow Burrows cannot come within a thousand miles of any daughter they may have. Their wedding is far less grandiose than Annie and Scott's, but equally as meaningful. And this time we get to see the reception and the bouquetos, which a reluctant Catherine is the recipient of. Just in case you haven't checked any podcatchers in the last week, I visited a few Hollywood TV sets for the most recent episode of The Bookshop, as I talked about the second book in the Spoiler Alert series by Olivia Dade, All the Feels. It's available for download now. For all that this film is sort of cute, the lead character is just that little bit too self-centred for me. In fact, it's almost as though season one Rachel is revisiting, and perhaps that's who the scriptwriters actually modelled Sarah on. Who knows? Just shows you how much attention I sometimes show to things. The film is actually based in 1997, which makes the presentation Bo gave at the San Francisco conference far more logical than it would have been in 2005, the year of Facebook. It also means that the whole 30 years later thing makes a lot more sense too. It seems that the initial production of the film was fraught and after the first director was let go, he was replaced with Rob Reiner, who is famous for a considerable number of successful rom-coms, including The Princess Bride, which is one of my favourites, and When Harry Met Sally. Reiner cleaned house and almost the entire cast were swapped out for new models, which is how we ended up with a cast that includes Ruffalo, Aniston, McLean and Costner. Despite coming out in a year that was riddled with great and some not-so-great films, such as Brokeback Mountain, Eon Flux, In Her Shoes, The First, The Lion, The Witch and the Wardrobe, King Kong, Munich and Casanova, rumour has it was a box office bomb. Did it make a profit? A little bit. But it seems that a romantic comedy with a Christmas Day release is set for disaster. It's not the sort of film that you actually go and see with your family. The budget for the film was a sizable $70 million and the box office take-home was a decidedly disappointing $88.9 million. So overall it made a profit of less than $20 million, which isn't great when you consider the fact that the film starred Aniston fresh off the Friends set. Clearly, people weren't going to see Rumour Has It in droves. In fact, I don't think I saw it at the cinema either. And when it comes to the critics, they were less than complimentary, though they were slightly more generous than they were about Blended. According to Kip Bowen from Hollywood.com, Aniston is much better playing sweet and quirky rather than messy and neurotic and honestly shines brighter when co-starring with strong comedic talents such as Ben Stiller or Jim Carrey. Shirley MacLaine, making a habit out of being the best thing in an otherwise dull movie, is a hoot as grandma. 
Costner doesn't look anything like Dustin Hoffman, thank goodness, but has zero chemistry with Aniston. And who knows what the hell Ruffalo is doing, wasting his talents doing this romantic comedy crap. Just say no, Mark. The film only earned 20% on Rotten Tomatoes and the majority of the 140 critic reviews say pretty much the same thing as the one above, which is not good. Over on IMDb, people seem to be feeling about the same with one saying, rumour has no humour. The truth about rumour, it stinks. How could a film with such an enticing premise and talented cast go so horribly awry? When I first heard the idea for Rumour Has It, I thought, what an interesting concept. A newly engaged young woman, Sarah Huttinger, comes to Pasadena, California for her sister Annie's wedding and realises her family was the inspiration for Charles Webb's novel, The Graduate, which Mike Nichols turned into a landmark film in 1967. In addition to Aniston and Suvari, toss in Shirley MacLaine as the potential Mrs. Robinson, Mark Ruffalo, Richard Jenkins, Kathy Bates, and of course, Kevin Costner as Benjamin Braddock all grown up. So why does rumour has it stink? Because it just isn't funny. It's flat, tepid, utterly devoid of even the slightest hint of humour. I have to admit that I find this film enjoyable, sort of. I've watched it a few times and I find it to be one of the more palatable films starring Jennifer Aniston, though not really because she's in it. Her character is probably one of the most unlikable in the cast, self-centred, self-obsessed, and the number of insulting assumptions she makes about her parents, their marriage and their happiness without even asking her dad are genuinely insulting. The overall story is great, but there are moments I think could have been tighter and made the story that much less cringy because there were points that I just felt downright uncomfortable, such as when she assumes that BB slept with her despite knowing there was a possibility she was his daughter. Why would anybody think that? Seriously, the damage she could have done to his professional and personal reputation by accusing him of such a heinous act in public is just unreal. All that being said, we've come to the question and answer part of this episode. Let me know if there are any questions you would like to hear me answer about the films and shows I watch, or if there's something you would love to hear me cover. So, here goes. Did I enjoy it? Yes, though, as I have already said, there are moments that I felt uncomfortable and would happily have forwarded through them had it not been for two things. One, the film is only actually one hour and 36 minutes long, so it's great to fit in after work one afternoon. And two, I needed to remind myself of certain unacceptable behaviours that played out on screen. As I have already mentioned and was highlighted in both of the reviews that I read out, there was absolutely no chemistry between Aniston and Costner in their roles as a couple who are so attracted to each other that they fall into bed together without a moment's thought. They just had no passion at all. All the conversation they had felt stilted and awkward, and the only time we saw any passion from Costner at all was when he was yelling at McLean after he followed Sarah to her dad's house. Also, quick question, how did he find out where she lived? because she doesn't actually live there. Anyway, that being said, it is an okay film, and if you ignore the fact that Sarah accuses Bo of committing potential incest and sleeps with him less than 12 hours after asking him if he's her father, then the rest of the film flows well. 
<laughs> Great. That's a, a resounding recommendation there, isn't it? It's in the UK currently airing on Amazon Prime. Would I watch it again? Being honest, this is not one of the films at the top of my rewatch list. That honour goes to Chalet Girl, Wimbledon and Stick It. Unless it's Christmas and then we're talking Arthur Christmas, The Santa Claus and The Holiday. Oh, and I've actually reviewed most of those, so I will link them below if you want to find out what I thought of them. As I have already mentioned, it's an okay film, but in order to get to the good, I have to get past the things that made me feel just a tad on the cringe side. So, how are things in the coffee household this week? For the first time in ages, I have actually been baking from scratch. I need to be in the right frame of mind for that because it's so easy to get things wrong. And as weird as it may sound, if I'm stressed or uptight, then forget it. Seriously, I end up with soggy sponges and solid brownies. And that way lies dissatisfaction for anyone who is interested in trying them. I actually don't eat cakes at all. I love biscuits. I adore chocolate. But cakes have never been my thing. So it's nice to be able to make something that I know others are going to enjoy eating. Yes, these are <laughs> brownies that I actually took into the office for my new colleagues to enjoy and they devoured them within about 20 minutes. Apart from that, things have not been 100% amazing for the last week. I know that in the last mental health update, I mentioned that I have apparently hit the next phase of my life as a woman and entered the wondrous stage known as perimenopause. It's nothing to fuss about, every woman goes through it, but the night sweats suck and have been affecting my sleep. And when they haven't, the most disturbing night terrors have taken their place. Lucky me. Last weekend, for some reason, I was suddenly transported back to a day in my childhood when two boys at school, who, who were just generally unpleasant, as teenage boys can be, they were verbally abusive and damaged some of my personal property. As they were good at sports, they actually got away with it and I was told that it was my fault for bringing something to school that was valuable to me. I'm talking about a jersey jacket that I had been given for my birthday and afforded just a bit of protection against the cold February weather that we experience, especially on the coast. But anyway, as I was standing in the bathroom cleaning my teeth, I was hit with this memory and it lingered for far longer than I would have liked. I could see their smug faces, hear the laughter, and it left me with a nasty taste in my mouth for the rest of the day. That night, I woke at just gone 3am, sweating, crying, and with the lingering memory of a dream that felt all too real. There were so many people in it who had no place being anywhere near my mind. Ex-colleagues, ex-classmates, ex-friends. All I needed was a couple of ex-boyfriends in there and I'd have had the perfect quadriptych, the sort of nightmare that stays with a person for months. Bullies and their actions stay in the mind for a lot longer than you stay in theirs. It's as though for that moment they are all powerful and it fulfills some kind of need to be validated for them. Unfortunately, as a victim of multiple bullies I encountered in school and at work, I think I am kind of a bully magnet. The pain never seems to go away, even when it looks as though I'm finally over it or recovering from the treatment that I experienced over so many years. It can just rear its ugly head again without warning, leaving me shivering and crying in a corner like the girl I once was. Being the victim of bullying at any stage of your life can have an effect on the person you are. 
But if I have learned anything, it's that you have to roll with the figurative punches, get back up, get on with life. And if you do that often enough, the bullies haven't won. Sure, what they did lives with you and visits your life at unexpected moments. But if you can carry on and push through the mental pain it causes when you do remember, then you have one up on them. You aren't the one who felt the need to inflict torture on someone just because they were different or didn't fit the vision that they felt to be ideal. And that's what pushed me to get up on Monday morning and is what pushes me to get up every single day. Sometimes I don't remember their names. Other times I remember everything. The days when they are a blur are just the best. So that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the listen and I will be back next week again for more. Don't forget the bookshop will be open again on Monday with a brand new review and I hope you like the book I picked and what I have to say about it. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and please post a review on Podchaser or at least a star rating. I really love reading what you have to say. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs, on Instagram at not before coffee podcast, and yay, we can now post links, or over on Good Pods where I've set up an account at not before coffee. Well, I need to get another cup of coffee. I definitely have not had enough today. So I'm going to go and put the kettle on. And until next time, this is me saying farewell. Bye.